Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to DI Spy, the weekly podcast which uncovers what's really going on in the world of diversity and inclusion. I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys and I'm Natasha Whitehurst. And in today's episode, we're going to be exploring whether football is homophobic. And we're joined by John Holmes. John is a journalist and editor and founder and lead of Sports Media LGBT+, a network advocacy and consultancy group that is helping the industry and sport in general become more welcoming and inclusive. Welcome, John. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Julie. Hi, Natasha. Well, it's a pleasure um, because we, we've been passing like ships in the night, haven't we, the last few years? So it's brilliant to uh, invite you on to this podcast because I know you do quite a bit of podcasting yourself. Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I mean, we have kind of, we kept missing each other, but um, here we are at last. So I'm looking forward to it. At last. <laughs> Absolutely. So let, let's um, let's crack on straight away then. So what do you see as the, the critical issues facing LGBT plus people in sport at the moment? Well, I mean, it's a complicated picture, I think. You know, got different levels uh, from grassroots all the way up to elite. You've got different sports, uh, some of which have been making really great strides in terms of LGBT inclusion, others that have kind of a, a bit more at the beginning of their journey. Um, my experiences as a, as a gay white man are going to be very different, obviously, from somebody who's in the trans or non-binary community. Um, they're going to, to have kind of different challenges. But I suppose some of the bigger issues that we're facing, um, the rise and increase in terms of online abuse um, on social media, uh, that has become, I think, more obviously uh, problematic, uh, particularly on certain platforms, uh, the way that people, you know, talk about sport and will uh, sometimes use homophobic, biphobic, transphobic language uh, to, to express themselves. That can be particularly difficult, as, as we know, kind of a very tribal nature of football in this country kind of lends itself to that in, in, in some respects. And, and and that's always been a challenge, but it's something we're seeing more of. Uh, and then it also in terms of policy uh, that sports have, their inclusion policies, how that impacts on trans and non-binary people in particular. Um, there, of course, have been some, some examples uh, that have led to sports taking quite stringent policies uh, and that you know, no doubt has not not just a, a knock-on effect on those particular individuals, but all the way down, trickles all the way down into the grassroots level of the sport because people will read and will see about these challenges that others are facing and think maybe this isn't a sport for me. So when you talk about um, the online abuse, are you talking about uh, players? Are, are, are they receiving that abuse? Because we see the professional 
players getting huge, huge amounts of abuse, um, particularly thinking when footballers and penalties missing and things like that um, from a race perspective. Are we seeing that in um, professional sport from an LGBT perspective as well then for the players? We are. Um, I think you can find several kind of reports, uh, particularly the one commissioned in recent times by FIFA and FIFPRO, the players' union, uh, analysing the amount of uh, social media abuse that comes to players involved in major tournaments. Uh, so particularly uh, in the last few weeks, uh, we've had one uh, from the Qatar World Cup and the levels of uh, abuse that is related to homophobia is very, very high. Um, I think it's pretty much on the similar levels to, to abuse that's, that would be deemed to be racially discriminatory. Um, so that is uh, quite alarming, I think, when when we understand you know, the way that people might react online uh, to incidents in matches, but also around matches. Obviously, people will be familiar with the um, the controversy about armbands at the last World Cup and, and the One Love campaign and how that was uh, stopped by FIFA and the knock-on effect uh, for a team like Germany, for example. You know, they staged a a protest uh, before one of their games where they kind of covered their mouths, the players that led to a great deal of, of kind of homophobic abuse online. So, uh, so that's kind of at an international level. And then I think on a domestic level, um, yes, we do see um, incidents of homophobic language and, and behavior online that is sent to players in their direct messages. Um, and quite a few have spoken about it, but also in stadiums as well, there's still, incidents of people shouting abuse uh, from from the stands so the more that we can kind of raise awareness of it and the more that the social media platforms can can take action to challenge and to and to improve clean up the uh, the landscape of their platforms uh, that's something that i think we all should be angling for um i think when you look at a platform like twitter it's kind of going perhaps in the, in the wrong direction so um that's been yeah a, a big concern and you, you kind of talk there about you know there needs to be there needs to be more um, action in this space. Is there you know is there a a club or a community that are taking action and 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 having a positive impact anywhere that you could kind of point to and say oh there's some best practice happening here? Yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of clubs that are kind of much more active around LGBTQ plus inclusion. Perhaps those you know, that have bigger budgets for EDI in general. Um, I, I look at a club like Liverpool, they've done some amazing work, not just uh, around uh, for, for people from the community who live on Merseyside, but tackling instances such as the discriminatory chant against Chelsea that has yeah. proliferated in football and has become more frequent. I won't necessarily name the chant, hopefully people might understand what it is, but it's directed at, at players who have a connection with Chelsea um, it's using language that is essentially a homophobic slur, a homophobic insult. Um, so Liverpool have done a lot of uh, work around educating their fan base about why that chant shouldn't be sung when Liverpool play Chelsea. Uh, they've used mm. um, key figures in the club like Jurgen Klopp, who have been able to kind of lend their voices, which gives it so much more weight uh, and carries it so much more further into, into those supporters groups. But also, as I say, the big the bigger supporters group, for example, the one at Liverpool Spirit of Shankly, um, they're also, you know, really, really active in this kind of campaigning message. And that has a huge benefit to the LGBT supporters group there, which is cop-outs, uh, because you've got that kind of big sibling uh, approach, which, you know, does 
does have a much greater impact. And yeah, and when I look at lots of other clubs involved in that, Chelsea themselves have done some amazing work, particularly working with the Crown Prosecution Service to help get legislation changed. That means that this particular chant is now deemed as dis being discriminatory. This is all kind of evidence at a very high level of the game that this is being taken much more seriously. Uh, so yeah. yeah, there's there's lots of sort of lots of different examples, I think, of clubs that have kind of gone the extra mile. But when you've got a specific uh, chant such as that, um, it can be it can be you need that kind of really uh, concerted effort to to tackle it. And and so whilst that kind of great work is happening, um, there's uh, I guess the the evidence around the uh, the football is is that you know we're in a place where there aren't any currently out male Premiership footballers um, in the UK, and there's very few across the globe. So you would question is you know is football a space that welcomes the LGBTQ plus community? Well, I think when you look at it from that elite level, like why don't we have that representation in the Premier League? Or why don't we have it at kind of pro level in the men's game, as you said, pretty much anywhere in the world, bar for like probably a handful of examples. I think you have to kind of understand just the way that the game has evolved over time. That, as I said, the kind of tribalistic nature of it, the, the intense pressure and scrutiny there is on, on pro athletes. Um, the impact that coming out might have, not just on them personally, but on their friends and family, um, on the people that you know are really, really important to them. I often look at this from a media perspective, um, and I'm concerned about some of still some of the levels of reporting that that goes on around players and their personal lives, yeah. not just related to to being LGBTQ, but there's as a level of there's an intense level of interest in in what players um, you know get up to almost like off the pitch. Um, mm. and, and I think when you're in that bubble, you've got a very short career, you might end up going to play somewhere, somewhere in the world that has anti-LGBT laws. Um, we're seeing, you know, this big drive to grow the pro game in Saudi Arabia at the moment, there's been sort of high profile players moving to play their football in that part, in that part of the world. That's a very, very difficult place indeed in which to be LGBT and even more complicated to be LGBT and out. So, so you've got all these kind of colliding factors. Yes, we do want to see more out role models in the men's game. And we've had incredible stories in the last 18 months of, of, of a young player like Jake Daniels at Blackpool, but also the first international player to come out as gay in the men's game, which is Jakob Yankto in the Czech Republic, um, Josh Cavallo in Australia. So very slowly, you know, more players are feeling comfortable to share right. their stories, but it's, it is a, a complex picture. And I think one thing that people maybe don't think so much about is actually if you're um, as, at a young age, if you're struggling with your sexuality, um, you might be into football, but be gay or, or bisexual. It's probably more likely, sadly, that you might back away from the game at a younger age because you don't think necessarily it will be an environment for you. Um, so the more that we can do at that kind of grassroots youth level to make sure that LGBTQ plus people stay in the game. Um, I think the more the more we will see that representation grow uh, at, higher up the chain. Brilliant. And do you think it's um, sort of helpful or uh, a bit of a hindrance when sort of famous people, um, ex footballers, not going to name who who was talking about it, um, asks and says asks why publicly why people aren't out or, or 
um, male professional Premier League footballers aren't out and says that they know a couple of uh, people who are uh, LGBT in Premiership and hope that they come out during Qatar. Um, I mean, is that helpful for people to say that? So yes, you're right. That was said by I think a couple of ex-players. Uh, certainly one I can I can remember before the tournament. And it was interesting actually to see a lot of the dialogue that ensued on social media. Some of the interactions around uh, when people say something like that in the media, and it comes from a good place because they 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 want to see people coming out because actually there's a really positive buzz that goes on around that. And you know somebody like Jake um, when he came out, you know, was getting messages from. FIFA, UEFA, from big clubs, you know, all kind of congratulating him and, and understanding the significant impact that sharing your story can have. Uh, I think when mm. you start saying things like specifically, like I know of a couple of people in the game who are gay and I wish that they'd come out. And when you do it in the build up to a World Cup, like we have in Qatar, you're kind of encouraged, well, yeah. you're trying to encourage them to do it to make, to make a point. Um, I think that's when we stray into difficult territory because it's a huge thing to, for somebody to take on, not just um, not just personally to be visible, but you're kind of in a way asking them to be a spokesperson for an entire community of people uh, because naturally they would they would represent uh, one of the very few people to be to be out in that kind of environment. That's a lot to take on, particularly mm -hmm. for for like a young person who might still be, you know, coming to terms with who they are and and how they how they fit in they might not have come out to everybody important in their life you know quite often i've heard from like athletes who have come out in different sports who said yeah i was out to everybody within my team i was out to everybody within my environment but i hadn't told my grandma yet or you know i hadn't told mm. like a, a family member who is very very close to me and they didn't want them to find out through the media of course so they needed to have that conversation with them yeah. separately in order to get past that point i think it was something that tom daly addressed really really well in the documentary that he produced last year for for the BBC around the Commonwealth Games about how actually the most difficult conversations was with his grandparents. So um, there's a it's a really you 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 have lots of kind of pillars of stability in your life, and unless all of them are in place all at once, you're unlikely to do that next level visibility of going public. And I think um, you you make some really great points there, and I think it is quite a complex narrative. Just staying with the um, Qatar piece, you know, there was um, the Joe Lyser, um shredding of the 15, 15k cash that we saw very publicly um, in relation to fake allyship and and some of the the people that were appearing in Qatar, etc. I just wonder what your what your thoughts were on that on that kind of fake allyship piece, and yeah, yeah, I mean. I think there was so much kind of discussion in the build up to the tournament around like how are we going to raise awareness that there are people who live in these countries who are LGBT plus who have no opportunity to be visible whatsoever. Um, you know, there, the, the, there's a level of clampdown. Um, the only way that they can really access anything that gives them that affirmation about who they are is watching things like Netflix, you know, maybe programs like Heartstopper because there, it's not there's no education in, in schools and there's no yeah. wider visibility in that community. So how do, when we've got a tournament in somewhere like, like Qatar, how do we sort of help people to know that, yes, we, we recognize that, that you happen to live in this country and, or in the region, in the wider region, and it's incredibly difficult for you. I think what Joe, Joe Lysett chose to do was find a way, which was a stunt. And, and I think he would have admitted it. It was a stunt that got people talking, you know, it, it, it shifted the conversation and, 
there was a focus on one of the uh, ambassadors for the World Cup uh, in David Beckham. Um, and the way that he was promoting the tournament without any reference to to, to this part of of the community that that lived in the region um and and yeah that i think that was really really difficult um for a lot of us um to see where somebody like like david beckham would be coming from because in the past he's spoken he's spoken confidently about being an lgbtq plus ally he's appeared on the front cover of magazines that are you know directed at people from the community um his his wife is a spice girl you know this, this these are all kind of elements of of somebody's kind of persona and 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 the influence that that they have so i think i understand uh, the the intention of, of what joe did and actually in the aftermath of doing that stunt uh, i remember the the tv program he spoke and he actually had a statement that did come through in the end from from david beckham and his people um trying to explain uh, i think what david was trying to achieve in his ambassadorship for the tournament uh and I think the kind of the the, the difficult the difficult language um, he almost like Beckham almost kind of tied himself up in knots. I think with with trying to explain where he was coming from, uh, and it, it, in the end, I think it did actually show that what Joe Lycett was trying to achieve had made a significant impact. It had helped focus people's attention in a place where it wouldn't have been otherwise. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You mentioned the word stunt there, and so I'd like to ask you about Ted Lasso um, and the, the the final series about um, we don't want to have a spoiler alert if people haven't seen the final series yet. But there's um, I'm going to spoil it. There's an there's an mm. out player um, Colin who who came out during the final series, and we have Trent who was a reporter there who was already out. Although as it started being talked about, it seemed he wore more and more Dolly Parton t-shirts. It seemed as they talked about <laughs> it throughout the series, but. How do, you, how do you think that was handled? Do you think it was like a stunt or do you think it was handled sensitively? I would absolutely say it was handled very sensitively. And um, it's been really interesting to to listen to both actors, uh, the, the actor that played Colin, the actor that played Trent, so Billy Harris and uh, James Lance, talking about the research that they did uh, to understand you know, what not just um, a player like Colin would be going through, but also a journalist like Trent. And this was a very rare depiction on screen of a sympathetic relationship between a journalist and uh, an LGBTQ plus athlete, I think. Um, we've probably not had too many kind of examples of this, but um, there's certainly been some in soap operas uh, that we've had in this country. And understanding actually that there was a scene where Trent saw Colin kissing his boyfriend. And the I think the expectation as a viewer would be that this was probably going to go in a certain way. Here's the journalist who's got an opportunity to with a big story, um, you know, maybe maybe he's he's got a kind of nefarious uh, objective here to to kind of, you know, to use Colin's um, sort of personal struggle as, as some kind of some kind of like journalistic scoop. 
Uh, that didn't happen. What we actually saw was a really important uh, conversation between the two of them, a bonding, a friendship bond that Colin hadn't really been able to have, I think, with other gay people because he was living in this very male-dominated football environment and not really able to share that part of who he was and gave him the chance to open up. And, and actually, that's been my experience as a journalist as well. You know, there have been occasions where I've had the opportunity to interview athletes who have been naturally cautious, I think, about sharing their truth with the journalists, um, you know, talking about stuff that's very, very personal to them. But I had my own struggles when I was, you know, in the industry back in the, the 2000s in particular. This was a place where, you know, being gay wasn't spoken about. And if it was, it wasn't done in a, in a positive way. It still felt very taboo. So I can I have that natural empathy with with other LGBTQ plus people uh, in all areas of sport. And, and that's what I... That's what I was really um, excited to see depicted in Ted Lasso. It was a really refreshing take um, and and was delivered with a lot of sensibility. Yes, it's a drama. So there were probably parts of the story as it continues throughout the series that maybe went into kind of areas of slightly utopian uh, feel or, or un unrealistic um, kind of uh kind of uh, territory but hey that's that's Ted Lasso and and it's going to it's going to strive to be as kind of uh, as as kind of forward thinking as it can be so look um i i was really pleased to see how that played out and it had a big impact on me that's really good to hear and i think let's just switch um kind of um switch view a little bit now and look at the women's game so i think if we look at the women's game we've seen a very different picture why do you think that is around the kind of LGBTQ plus community? Well, the women's game hasn't had that level of scrutiny and intensity that the men's game has had on it until very recently. Um, and actually, for all those 50 years in which the women's game was banned in this country, it, it was it was de, de facto marginalized as a sport for, for women in this country. And what that meant, meant was not just when the ban ended in, in the 70s, but but in the 20 years, 30 years since then, when it began to find its feet and began to develop leagues and competitions and uh, and a whole stru structure, it meant that those uh, people that had come to the game to find community, to build friendships, were included a lot of LGBTQ plus people in, in the first place. Um, and, you know, they've been able to help to shape the game, you know, in that image and to, and to make sure that inclusion is kind of woven into the fabric of, of, of women's football in a way that men's the men's game hasn't because of the, the tribalism, because of the language that gets used around it, because of the, the focus on being strong and masculine and, and, and all those kind of stereotypes that are all wrapped up in, in football and, and team sport. Um, and here we are now with the women's game finally getting the the deserved attention, finally getting the platform, finally, you know, reaching, being able to kind of share um, everything that's great about it on, a, on such a huge platform, such a huge stage uh, that particularly benefits uh, young girls who want to get into, into the sport. Um, and, and we have, in, it means we have incredible array of role models in, in women's football as well. We have out players, out coaches, out broadcasters, uh, match officials, um, and each of them, you know, has, has been able to, to, to find that football plays a massive part in, in their lives in terms of accepting themselves, um, learning about their own identities. And they get to that point, I think, a lot quicker, uh, perhaps than young men do um, in football. So that's, that's probably the background as I would see it. Um, 
I don't think the I don't think it's perfect by any means. I think there's still challenges that that we need to overcome in terms of the women's game. I mean, for example, something we've done recently was looking at the growth and awareness around Lesbian Visibility Week, which happens at the end of April. You know, become quite an important part of the LGBTQ plus calendar. Um, people will be familiar with History Month in February, Pride Month in June, and Rainbow Laces. You know, happens in in sport around kind of autumn time. But Lesbian Visibility Week is a great chance to lift up those voices. And actually, the women's game didn't really hasn't really sort of chosen to engage with that particularly. Um, and I don't know whether that's because of stereotypes or or kind of other kind of barriers. Maybe they're concerned about image and marketing because that is something that's obviously become really really important to to women's football. So, so I think there's there's still kind of work to do. But yes, overall, it's a much more encouraging picture. And from a fan perspective, um, the women's game seems to be leading the way. Um, from a, from my perspective, anyway, so I go to um, male games and, and not as many women's games, but I've definitely noticed the difference in the atmosphere um, of the fans there. I think so. And um, I remember going to the first game of the Women's Euros at Old Trafford. Um, obviously, so many kind of like families there, kind of a much more diverse crowd than perhaps you would get uh, at a men's major tournament. Um, but also... You know, as I said, I think there's still a kind of uncertainty in, in some parts of women's football to how does it embrace or show its inclusive values uh, to people who are LGBTQ+. You you get these incredible kind of role model icon figures like Megan Rapinoe, who might say something at a, at a World Cup about how you can't win a game without gays, you, you can't win a championship without gays, done in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way. But um, I think, you know, at the top level of the game, um we we will probably see some kind of uh interesting journey i guess with this women's world cup in australia and new zealand again it comes back to what kind of armbands will players wear what kind of visible symbols will there be of lgbtq plus inclusion um and and maybe that's something because a lot of these decisions are taken at a very high level in the sport and actually lgbtq plus people aren't necessarily sat around those tables they're not necessarily represented in those senior leadership positions and that i think is where some of this conflict begins to uh begins to play out and and we don't then get to see it represented in the messages uh in the visibility that's that's sent out at a major tournament and that's kind of what happened with the one love armband row at the qatar world cup you know decisions were made very late in the day um and as a consequence of that you know there's there's been a, a clearly a, a greater drive for for players at the women's world cup coming up this summer to, to wear those armbands or to, or to or to have more clear symbols of LGBTQ plus inclusion um, when they uh, when they speak to the media or even when they take the field. And as we talk about those actions, that brings us uh, to our final question for you, John. Um, and we ask this of all of our guests: uh, We say that inclusion is an action; it just doesn't happen by accident. Um, so. What would be your top tip or your inclusive action that you'd like to share and ask of our listeners uh, once they finish listening to you? You know, what would you like them to do? Well, I'll speak from like a media side and with my football v homophobia hat on as well. I, I think from a media perspective, we still occasionally see stories that are run in certain outlets that are speculative in their nature about um, whether or not there are gay or bi male players in the pro game. 
Uh, I remember one from a few months ago that ran and was then picked up by lots of other outlets that suggested that there were two teammates at a premiership club who were in a relationship together. And this kind of reporting is very salacious. It's very sensational. Um, it leads to a lot of speculation online, uh, gossip that gets kicked up, and it has a really negative impact on people who are in the game who might still be struggling uh, with that part of who, who they are. And um, and although we see less of it now, um, it still happens. Uh, and so anything that kind of you know contributes to gossip or or trying to work out who the gay player is in uh, in the Premier League, that's not helpful. Uh, so so I would encourage people if they if they see this kind of rumor getting kicked up online, call it out. Say that you know this isn't how we create a more inclusive environment. We're not going to see a player come out off the back of one of these types of stories. That's just un entirely unrealistic. So please kind of help support our part of the of the media industry in in contributing towards a, a more inclusive football atmosphere. And then in terms of football for homophobia, um, you know we're kind of involved at the moment with a new kind of grassroots clubs initiative. We understand that it's been, as we as we kind of discussed on this podcast, a lot of attention, I think, at the pro level of the game in terms of inclusion campaigns. But this is something that people who are involved in grassroots clubs can get involved in. It's going to give them kind of more guidance around language and terminology. They might not have as much time or as much money to spend on EDNI as uh, as you might find in in professional football. But these are going to be free workshops. Um, they're going to give people all that kind of uh, learning and, and education that they might not be able to access elsewhere. So I'd encourage them to kind of check that out on the Football v Homophobia website uh, because there's some really exciting opportunities that are opening up for grassroots clubs. Brilliant. Great top tips there, John. Thank you so much. Um, really enjoyed our um, episode today. Thank you for, for joining us and, um, yeah, sharing sharing your perspectives on, on a topic that actually I think we're going to see more and more discussion over the next few months. Well, it's been wonderful to spend time with you both. Thank you. You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.